Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the weekly UK true crime podcast. I'm Adam. No technical mishaps this week, so I'm on my usual Tuesday slot. Thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate it. This week, I have finally started a Patreon page. So if you have a moment, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime to see how you could help support the show. Except for Patreon, Twitter's always the best place to catch me, so please come and say hi at UKTrueCrime.com. For today's case, we again move north of the border to Scotland. It's obviously not as well written as last week's case of the bogus gas man by friend of the show, True Crime Enthusiast. Thank you, by the way, for everyone who's commented on how much they enjoyed that episode. Really appreciate it. This week, we're back to my amateur efforts again, I'm afraid but I hope you still find it enjoyable. On Friday the 13th of June 2013, hundreds of mourners attended a funeral service for a mother and daughter who died after being found critically injured at a hotel. Margaret McDonoghue, 52, and her daughter Nicola, 23, were found injured at a Premier Inn in Greenock in the western central region of Scotland, which is around 25 miles west of Glasgow. It was a sombre occasion, with a number of hymns sung, and the readings were from the Book of Lamentations and the Letter of St Paul to the Romans. At the end of the service, Margaret's coffin was carried out of the cathedral by her sons, Matthew and Michael. Nicola's coffin was carried by her father, Tom, and her brother, Kevin. Afterwards, both women were given a private burial at Hawkhead Cemetery in Paisley. At the request of the family, this was strictly a private event with no members of the media allowed access inside the church. This is not surprising, following the intense media interest after the discovery of the two bodies. So what series of events had led to this tragic outcome? In May 2013, Margaret McDonoghue was a respected member of her local community in Paisley, which is a town approximately 12 miles west of Glasgow. Having divorced seven years ago, She remained in the family home with her five grown-up children. She fostered other children to help give them a better life. I so admire people able to do this, don't you? Excellent with children. She was described by one friend as a wonderful mum, and I expect that is why she decided to become a foster mother. I remember seeing her in the bank recently with one of her foster children who was having a huge tantrum. I told her she had her hands full, but she was completely calm. She took it in her stride. She was a natural mother. Margaret had stood in elections for her local council as a Liberal Democrat candidate. Her profile stated, She sees firsthand the needs of very vulnerable children in her care and their families and would like to be able to take some of that knowledge into the decision-making processes of the council. She also has interest and experience in looking at special educational needs for young children to ensure that all children reach their full potential. One of her children was 23-year-old Nicola, who had recently graduated with a social work degree from the University of West of Scotland, and she worked for a charity, Cosgrove Care, which helps children and adults with learning disabilities. A very popular person, she was now at that wonderful stage of life, having finished university when anything feels possible. Remember that? This is before we're ground down by the system. Other people, that is. Not listeners to this show... We are all still on the up, right? And we're open to all opportunities ahead of us. That's us. Nicola was actively applying for jobs 
and had recently booked to travel to Basel, Switzerland, for a short break with three university friends at the start of June to celebrate finishing their course before their formal graduation in July. On Thursday the 9th of May, at around 9 in the morning, neighbour Scott Brown saw Margaret leave her home and she seemed perfectly normal. I waved to her in her car and she waved back. She'd gone into the house a few minutes earlier and had gone straight out. Margaret seemed fine and I did not detect any anxiety. The two women checked into the Premier Inn at Greenock, which was 17 miles from their home, at about 3.50 in the afternoon. It was around this time that Margaret was reported missing by her family, as she had failed to pick up her foster son from nursery, which was unheard of for Margaret. Margaret and Nicola left the hotel a short time later, and then returned between about half past midnight and 1 o'clock a.m. the next day. Nobody knows where they were, where they went, or why. There were no further sightings during the early hours of 10th of May, so it's presumed they stayed in their room. The next morning at 7am, Nicola was found slumped in the hallway of the hotel by a horrified guest. She was unconscious with deep slash wounds to her arm. The alarm was raised and she was rushed to hospital. Hotel staff rushed to their room to find Margaret also seriously injured with slash wounds on her arm. She was also taken to Inverclyde Royal Hospital for treatment, but medics were unable to save her and she died a few hours later. Nicola was in a critical condition for three days, with her family anxiously waiting at her bedside before she too tragically lost her fight for life. The local community wanted more information about how two women could have died in such circumstances. Was it a suicide pact? Was there a murderer on the loose? Just what had happened? Detective Inspector David Wagstaff of Police Scotland confirmed that both women suffered slashing injuries, but they were not stabbed. He said, At present, we are keeping an open mind on the circumstances. However, we can confirm that we are not looking for any third party at this time. I would urge anyone with information, however insignificant it may seem, to get in touch with police. The police clearly felt this was suicide. This led to wild speculation locally and on internet forums, given a whole host of reasons why the two women could have been murdered rather than take their own lives. You can imagine some of the wild theories that are out there. Some of the details of the case are particularly strange and hard to understand. For example, why had the two women chosen to kill themselves in such a horrible way? It was reported that if Margaret had survived, she'd have had to have her arms amputated. They were that bad. Both arms were slashed from the wrist to the top of her arms and Nicola had similar injuries, which stopped at the top of her lower arms. Why had they not just taken a drugs overdose or chosen another easier form of suicide? Questions were also asked about why Nicola was not in the room. Had she changed her mind and she was trying to get help or were there other potential explanations? Why they decided to end their lives at a hotel just 17 miles from their home? What had they been doing on the day before they died, meaning they didn't return to their room until the early hours? These and others, a lot of unanswered questions, but the two people most likely to have had the answers were now dead. One thing that could be confirmed was cause of death. The sole cause of Margaret's death was listed as incised wounds of the left arm, and Nicola's was a single wound to the left arm. 
the documents made no mention of claims and speculation that the women had also overdosed on paracetamol. It later emerged that Margaret had made a will the day before she died, leaving her estate of £254,000 to her sons Kevin, Michael and Matthew. She attended the offices of her solicitors in Paisley and signed the will in the presence of a partner at the firm. Nicola was not mentioned in the will, which further fueled speculation that the two deaths were the result of a suicide pact. But why? On the 22nd of May, police investigating the deaths visited the home of 31-year-old Lindsay Cotton, seizing her phones and laptops. Cotton lived in Addywell, near Edinburgh, with her two children. She had suffered from personal issues most of her life. She had to leave school early because she was bullied over her size and weight, something which had a profound effect on her personality and self-esteem. When later assessed, she was seen as being a lonely, socially isolated, needy and unhappy woman who had lost control of her weight and had absolutely no self-esteem in her ability to attain or attract a suitable partner as a result. She was suffering from chronic anxiety due to her image issues and post-traumatic stress disorder following the death of her father in 2004. Cotton found it easier to live in a fantasy world that she could create herself rather than deal with the realities of being her. Lonely and depressed, Cotton took to internet dating where, as we know, anyone can be anything they want to be. Online, she met Margaret's son, Michael, who'd been using internet dating for the last 12 months or so. Michael was a 31-year-old RAF technician based at the Scottish RAF base in the beautiful town of Lossiemouth, on the northeast coast of Scotland, around 180 miles north of Edinburgh. Just one piece of advice, if you're going surfing there, take a hat, it can be freezing, even in summer. Michael used the profile on popular dating sites Plenty of Fish, and in May 2012, he made contact with a beautiful woman called Stephanie Wilson, Steph to him. Immediately, they seemed to click, excuse the pun, and they were constantly chatting online and on the phone. Soon Michael felt he had fallen in a big way for Steph and it appeared she felt the same way about him. There was just one big issue with this romance. Steph wasn't actually Steph. She was Lindsay Cotton. I'm not sure if you know this, I didn't, but pretending to be someone else on internet dating sites is now so common that it is a thing and known as catfishing. Using stolen pictures of a pretty young relative, her stepsister's daughter, Steph, Cotton hooked Michael and reeled him into a fantasy world, convincing him that he was in a relationship with the woman that she'd made up called Steph. But every time Michael tried to arrange a meeting with Steph, Cotton made up excuses to delay the rendezvous, including she'd been jailed for a breach of the peace after a fight with her non-existent sister's boyfriend, Jason. Cotton posed as a family member to text Michael, telling him that Steph had confronted Jason and been brutally attacked by him. She told him that Steph was left with a broken jaw, a fractured cheek, broken arm, suspected fractured skull and swelling on the brain. That was the beginning of a series of physical problems which Cotton said befell Steph, from suffering three heart attacks and being dropped in a hospital bath to being subjected to numerous murder attempts by employees from a non-existent medical company. While still posing as one of Steph's relatives, Cotton said that Steph's injuries were so bad she had to be admitted to hospital and undergo plastic surgery 
to correct the damage that Jason had caused to her body. Posing as Steph's mother, she then told Michael that the boyfriend had attacked Steph so violently this time it had left her with bleeding on the brain. Steph's only hope, Cotton claimed, was a stem cell treatment being trialled by a company called Biotech Scotland. She further claimed that Michael would not be able to visit Steph in hospital because of a confidentiality agreement with the company. At this time, Lindsay Cotton befriended Michael as herself by claiming that she was Stephanie's only real-life friend who'd been granted power of attorney over his fictitious girlfriend. Cotton then claimed that a doctor in the trial had tried to kill Steph by poisoning her and that Biotech would be paid £100 million if all the patients in the trial died. She said the government was involved and that the press had been banned from reporting the case. Michael was led to believe that Biotech were trying to kill his girlfriend, Steph. Lindsay Cotton told him the scandal was so big that the government were trying to cover it up. As if. She said he was keeping Steph alive with his support and Biotech were preventing him from seeing her as they were trying to kill her. Cotton began to involve herself in the fantasy, convincing Michael that she was a mother-like figure to Steph, while at the same time using her alter ego to coerce him into doing what she wanted. He was tricked into giving her nearly £5,000, an iPhone and a Blackberry. He also asked Steph to marry him. After receiving the initial proposal, Cotton, posing as Steph, told Michael that he couldn't really love her because he'd failed to buy her a ring, a claim which led him to spend almost £2,000 on an engagement ring. And Cotton began to wear this ring herself, telling her friends and family that she was engaged to Michael. Cotton, she sent blood-soaked pictures purporting to be of Steph undergoing heart surgery. She showed pictures of her injuries in hospital and at one time even sent a picture of her own hand wearing a diamond ring, pretending to be Steph. For a while, Michael moved in with Cotton at her home, thinking this was the best way to keep up to speed with Steph's condition. He carried out DIY jobs around her house. He took her children snowboarding. He bought them equipment and they even went on a two-week holiday to Newcastle in the August of 2012. Michael insisted that though they were close, the relationship with Cotton was only ever platonic. The stress of Steph's predicament and not being able to see her led to Michael leaving his post at the RAF base in Lossiemouth in January 2013. So Michael was completely unaware that Lindsay Cotton was pretending to be Steph and he even invited her round to the family home in Paisley to discuss the situation. A panicked Michael confided in his mum, who of course as his mum said that he should offer Stephanie his full support, as she would, because as far as she was concerned, Steph was her son's fiance. Margaret told Nicola about Steph's medical case, and Nicola told her ex-boyfriend. When Cotton found out about this, she changed her tone, and she became more threatening. She claimed that Nicola and Margaret had breached the confidentiality of Steph's case, that they both now faced 20 years in prison. Cotton, now posing as a lawyer, began sending Margaret and Nicola messages saying they may have to flee the country. Nicola was said to be in hysterics over this and Margaret was physically sick with the worry. As an indication of the pressure that Cotton was putting on the family, on the 6th of May, she sent 130 separate texts between 6.20pm and midnight. That's 130 texts in under six hours. One from Cotton, posing as Steph to Michael, said, And I want revenge on your stupid effing sister. 
I want to put her in effing prison. She opened her effing mouth. Another, from the fake lawyer Callum to Michael, said, They've just stated that if Lindsay's not to be held accountable, it'll have to be both your mum and Nicola that go to prison instead. Michael was distraught, as you can imagine, and he sent texts to Steph saying he can never forgive his mum or his sister for breaching the confidentiality clause. On the 7th of May 2013, Cotton went to Margaret's home to discuss the crisis. She demanded £5,000 to hire a lawyer who could make the case go away, and a further £500 to arrange a fake passport for Nicola so she could escape the country. When we listen to this now, it's hard to understand how the family could be taken in by this deception. But Cotton, she was very thorough and sophisticated in her approach. In the course of the deception, characters invented by Cotton included Sammy, mother of Steph, Donna, Tracy, Bill, the stepbrother of Steph, Ashley, Steph's nurse, the QC Quentin, Callum, supposedly a lawyer instructed to look after Steph's interests, a judge called Philip and Sonia, who was Steph's sister. And there were others too. Cotton used 15 mobile phones, two laptops and two tablet computers to convince the family that she was more than a dozen different people. I'm sure it reminds you, as it does me, of case one of this podcast where we looked at the murder of Katie Winter. Her killer, Tony Bushby, used fictitious characters on Facebook to build Katie's trust in him and in the end he even blamed the murder on one of these characters. Seeing Michael's emotional involvement, it is no wonder that this felt terrifyingly real to the family. Nine days after Cotton first threatened Nicola and Margaret, and just three days after this meeting on the 7th of May, Margaret and Nicola were found dying at the Premier Inn. It appears that, petrified of life behind bars, and believing they may be killed as part of a non-existent government cover-up into the biotech scandal, Margaret and Nicola formed their bizarre and tragic suicide pact, which led to them taking their own lives. Cotton was arrested and charged by police. Although many would argue that Cotton was directly responsible for the murders, or at least guilty of manslaughter, these weren't the charges she faced in court. In the dock, she pleaded guilty to fraud, falsely threatening Margaret and Nicola with prison, and conning Michael out of money and gifts. She was not charged in any way of the deaths of the mother and daughter. Cotton claimed to have committed the crimes because she wanted a relationship with Michael. Her lawyer told the court that his client felt remorse and shame for the upset and anguish her deplorable conduct had caused the family. He explained, Lindsay Cotton, in her own words, said that she was truly sorry for the trauma she caused to Michael and his family. She previously indicated to me that she felt sick to the pit of her stomach by what she had done. That, I would submit, is an entirely appropriate response and indicative of the remorse she feels of her dreadful behaviour. I would invite the court to accept that she is properly remorseful for the wrongs she has perpetrated. He said that although there was no excuse for such dreadful behaviour, she loved Michael and was obsessed with him, and so her lies had got more and more far-fetched in a bid to keep hold of him, and she just couldn't bear the prospect of living without him. She said her primary motive was the relationship with Michael, whilst a secondary motive was a better standard of living and better finances. The lawyer asked for leniency for his client and to spare her jail, saying that she'd been left with emotional scars after suffering violence at the hands of a series of former partners. On the 8th of October 2015, Lindsay Cotton was sentenced. 
Sheriff Robert Fife described Cotton's behaviour as deplorable, callous, despicable and shameful. I think the best word to sum up what you have done is cruel. You were cruel to Michael, to Margaret and to Nicola. My sympathies go out to the McDonoghue family and their friends for their loss, but it's important that I record that you have not been charged with the deaths of Margaret or Nicola. I have to sentence you for the charge you have pleaded guilty to. You place extraordinary demands on people who were vulnerable. Sheriff Five said he considered remitting Cotton's case to the High Court so she could receive a longer sentence due to the high level of planning involved. But he said he came to the decision that the maximum five-year term available to him was enough. He took his starting point at three years and ten months, reducing the sentence to three years after noting that Cotton's guilty plea had saved the taxpayer money by preventing a four-week trial of 150 witnesses. A group of young women in court, believed to be friends of Nicola, began crying as the sheriff revealed that Cotton was being jailed for only three years. Cotton herself showed no emotion, staring into space, while friends and relatives of the McDonoghue family looked on from the public gallery. It was revealed after the court case that Cotton had been using Stephanie's photo since 2011, initially setting up a Facebook account to attract male friends. Stephanie said she barely knew her aunt and had very little to do with her, but she was made aware by a family member in 2001 that Cotton was using her photos on a Facebook profile under the name Stephanie Moody. She said, I heard if you looked at the friends list, it was loads of men, so I didn't want people to think the profile was anything to do with me. To get the fake profile removed, I had to create my own profile and then lodge a complaint about the other one. Stephanie, who is married to Jamie, said, Jamie was really angry about it too, but it was just such a sad thing to do. I didn't want to confront Lindsay about it. I didn't want anything to do with her. And we can understand why. Imagine the embarrassment of having that conversation with a family member. She only became aware her aunt was up to old tricks again after Margaret and Nicola died in May 2013. And what about Lindsay Cotton's children? Her daughter, Lauren, revealed after her mum's conviction that her family had been treated like criminals, but she knew nothing of her mum's bizarre plot. Lauren said, I had no idea. I only found out through the papers. It was very shocking because we didn't understand what was going on. But Lauren, who celebrated her 16th birthday on her mum's first day behind bars, only learned about Steph after reading about her in the press. She revealed how she grew close to Margaret and Nicola in the months before their death, believing that her mum was engaged to their son and brother, Michael. Lauren said, Steph was never brought up to me. No one had ever mentioned it. My understanding was that Michael was my mum's fiancé and that they got engaged. Michael let me and my brother and my friend go up to Lossiemouth at the RAF base. We had a great time and he introduced himself to my friend as my mum's fiancé and that's how we understood it. My mum has had boyfriends before, two or three, and they've always left her. My mum was quite scared that he would leave her too. She thought she'd found someone genuinely nice, and that's what me and my family thought. We thought he was a really nice man. Lauren said that she and her younger brother had been subjected to abuse in the street since her mum's guilty plea, and begged the public to stop punishing the family for her crime. She said, People have been shouting in the streets my little brother and me, calling her a murderer. It's really very upsetting. On the 20th of March 2016, 
Lindsay Cotton was less than six months into her prison sentence when she suddenly fell ill at Salton Prison in Edinburgh. After collapsing in prison, she was taken to the city's Royal Infirmary, but the doctors couldn't save her. She died of natural causes. Margaret's brother Owen said, Good, she deserves worse. She should have died ages ago. Her ex-partner, Gordon Johnson, said, It's difficult to say I'm sorry about her death, but I do feel sorry for her kids who are left behind, and I also feel sorry for the family of the two women who died as a result of what she did. She really wasn't a very well-liked woman. I certainly won't be going to her funeral. As you've heard, today's story is utterly horrendous. Two innocent women taking their own lives after suffering such emotional distress and such a detailed deception carried out by Lindsay Cotton, whatever the reason for doing so. There are still some who find the whole case very difficult to understand. Why did Nicola and Margaret fall for the blackmail rather than go to police? Surely, they would have been able to find the 5k if needed. After all, Margaret's estate was valued at over £200,000, so £5,000 they would have been able to raise that. Was suicide a more palatable option than paying the money or telling the police? as they both had so much to live for. Why were police so sure instantly that no third party was involved? And again, many questions are asked about the gruesome choice of suicide method. Is there something missing here? Or are people grasping for answers when actually the facts leading to Margaret and Nicola's premature deaths are laid clearly in front of us? Either way, the place where our sympathies have to lie are with Michael and the rest of their family as they try in some way to get over this and to move on with their lives. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the weekly UK True Crime podcast. Please head over to Patreon slash UK True Crime to discover how you can support the show. That's all for today, so I look forward to talking to you next week. Cheerio for now.